KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Tet Adar Rishon, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Tetzaveh, and this is your host, Jonathan Snowbell. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel. This week, Parshat Tetzaveh, we will discuss the The place of sin within our reality, as a how much of it is lechatchila, how much of it is bidiyavad, and what that means to us. Um, there's a well-known machloket between Rashi and the Ramban as to the placement of parshiot truma titzaveh vis-a-vis Chet Egel. In other words, it's generally accepted that according to Rashi, the commandment regarding the Mishkan took place after Chet Egel, as a reaction to Chet Egel, as opposed to the Ramban, who believes that the Parshiot are according to the order, the the commandment on the Mishkan, the Kelim of the Mishkan, the clothing of the the Kohanim, all happens before Chet Egel, and it is not a reaction to Chet Egel. This express this this machoket expresses itself in this week's parsha, Parsha Tetzaveh, when we see after the commandment on the building of the Mishkan and Parsha Truma, and after the commandment on the close of the Kohanim, in the beginning of Parshat Tetzaveh, we come to Parshat Hamiluim. On the day that the Mishkan was instated, there were korbanot brought Miluim before this day as well, for seven days, and finally the eighth day was the, the, the climax of all of this, which ultimately the, the actual transpiring of this event is described only later on in Sefer Vayikra, Parshiot Savin Shmini, but here it's already commanded in this week's Parsha. And the first commandment reads as follows, After you've built the, the Kelim of the Mishkan, and after you've woven and created the clothing of the Kohanim, now we have to go through the miluim, a, a series of korbanot and other actions that essentially give the kelim of the Mishkan and the Kohanim their status. They give them their, their uh, kedusha, their holiness, in order to, that they can function in the way that they're supposed to function. And the first korban that's described is lekach par echad ben bakar veilim shnayim tmimim. Par echad, Rashi says lechaper al maaseh egel shuhu par. Right away, Rashi says, within this view that Rashi takes here in the parsha, that chet egel happens before the tibu and the mishkan, and therefore the mishkan somehow is atoning for chet egel. And the Mishkan somehow is addressing the need for something physical, perhaps. So too, this korban is atoning for chet ha'egel. par echad ben bakar. Why? L'chaper al ma'aseh egel shuhu par. 
Um, the Siftei Chachamim here explains Rashi, Dekashilei, why a par and not a not why dafka a cow or an ox in this situation, not a different type of animal altogether? Because the chaperal maaseiga. All right, this uh, comment of the sitech chachamim is interesting because Rashi doesn't comment on elim shnaim to me. Why do we need two elim? But nonetheless, this highlights for us Rashi's viewpoint that here the chet is already part of the reality, and therefore the mishkan is already. Fixing the sin that actually transpired. Rashi, in general, likes to stick in the sin of Chaita Egal as a reality, not only after it's happened, but even before it's happened. This comes across in Parshat Mishpatim. In Parshat Mishpatim, which, according to everyone, happened before Chaita Egal, God says towards the end of the Parsha, I am sending an angel before you. And Rashi says, "Kanit basrusha tidin lachto." Ushchina omeret lahem kilo elebikir b'cha. Here, they are told, they are hint, it is hinted, it is alluded that they are going to sin, and that God is not going to be in their midst, but rather a malach, an angel, will be instead. So the, Rashi sees Cheta Egel as something that is driving already, even before it transpired, and even, and then certainly. Um, many of the things in Sefer Shemot, the Mishkan, are driven by Chet Egel to atone for Chet Egel to address the issues that that rose in Chet Egel. As and as we mentioned, the Ramban is not of this opinion. The Ramban is of the opinion that Truma and Tetzaveh, the, the commandment on the Mishkan and the, the, the clothing and the inauguration of the Mishkan, all of that predates Chet HaEgel, is not a reaction to Chet HaEgel. In that sense, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is the Mishkan, according to the Ramban, a place of purity, of perfection, one that does not know how to deal with sin, and, and what is the Mishkan good for after B'nai Israel have already sinned in Chet Ego? Perhaps the Mishkan is something that was only relevant to B'nai Israel when they were at the level that they were at, Matan Torah. They hadn't sinned, they were at some sort of level close to perfection. And once the Chet Egel transpires, the Mishkan, as it is, is not able to deal with B'nai Yisrael at the level that they have sunk into. Perhaps Rashi's interpretation then is, per- is preferred, because according to Rashi, the commandment on the, for the Mishkan pre- is after Chet Egel. And being after Chet Egel then we know at least that the Mishkan addresses B'nai Israel on the level that they are after Chet HaEgel. But if according to the Ramban, the Mishkan was commanded before Chet HaEgel, and now B'nai Israel have fallen, perhaps the Mishkan is no longer relevant. 
Vehaya al Metzach Aharon. The Torah tells us that the tzitz, some sort of crown, golden crown, a golden strip, that sat on the forehead of the Kohen Gadol of Aharon, that sat on it, Kodesh Lashem, Vehaya al Metzach Aharon. Vinasa Aharon et Avon Hakodashim. What is the purpose of the tzitz? It is in order to for Aharon to take upon himself or on the, onto the tzitz the Avona Kodashim. The tzitz in the Lashon of the Gemara is Meratzeh. It takes korbanot that were brought bitum'ah, impure, which are of course prohibited, but perhaps the owner didn't know, perhaps the Kohen didn't know that there was tum'ah here, there was some tum'ah that they didn't know about. And it makes it takes these korbanot that otherwise shouldn't be accepted, and it makes them acceptable. Avon HaKodashim. In other words, the Mishkan, the Kelim of the Mishkan, are not meant for some perfection, for some utopia. They are meant to deal with the normal failings of human beings. In the normal failings of human beings, mistakes are made. Sins occur. There are chata'ot, ashamot. So chata'ot are sins that happen b'shogeg. But serious sins that happen b'shogeg, by accident. But there are ashamot, and ashamot are often brought on sins that are not by accident. And all these korbanot are part of the mishkan. But the tzitz... Is something that's described according to the Ramban before Chet Ha'egel. Yet we have Avon Kodashim. When we speak about the inevitability of sin, our first reaction is to be depressed. If sin is inevitable, then why are we trying to fight our Yetzirah? Why are we trying to overcome ourselves? It's going to happen. We have no control over it. But when the Torah tells us that sin is inevitable, it is essentially giving us hope. Because if the Torah tells us that we're expected to to be at a certain level, and that's it, and then we fail to achieve that level, then we feel like we're finished, we're doomed, we've gone out of the box. But when the Torah addresses the potential for sin, and it discusses how to deal with the sin, there's a tzitz that will... And it's telling us, even in the, even when there is a mishkan, 
even when everything is going according to the plans, there will be failures, and there are ways of dealing with the failures. One who fails is an out. One can fail and remain inside. In other words, the conclusion that we're coming to is both according to Rashi and according to the Ramban. According to Rashi, that the entire commandment for the Mishkan is post-Chet Egel. Certainly the Mishkan and the, the ideal world of Mikdash is able to deal with the concept of sin. But even according to the Ramban, who says that the Mishkan was commanded before Chet Egel, it is not out of a place assuming perfection, demanding perfection, perhaps demanding perfection, but not assuming perfection. It's from a place that addresses the possibility of sin, the possibility of failures, and nonetheless, it is a relevant means of communicating with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this is something that we have to take and understand with, throughout our lives, throughout our lives within Torah, the Torah has very high demands of us. And we should always strive to reach those demands. But when we fail, we haven't broken out of the concepts of Torah. The Torah knows how to deal with the concept of failure, and we have to know how to help ourselves correct the failures and go back in the right direction. At this point in the program, we will give over the microphone to Rav Tavori. This week, on Yud Aleph Adarishon, is the yard site of the person who is known as the Avne Nezer or the Egletal. Rabbi Avram ben Zev Nachum Bornstein was born in 1839. His father was a well-known Tamid Chacham, the author of a Sefer Agudas Ezov, who was a Rav of various cities in Poland. As is the custom among Hasidish Rebbes, the stories and the wonders about the Eglital abound from earliest childhood. There is even a story as to the reason that Reb Avram Reb Zev Nachum, the Rabbi of the Egle, the Rabbi Eglital, the Avnei Nezer, was born to Reb Avram Zev. Of course, he was also his father was Zev Nachum. Sorry, his father was also a Tamid Chacham, but yet his son certainly outshadowed him. And in Hasidus, they used to say, why was the father privileged to have such an illustrious son? And they tell a story that one year on Purim, apparently nobody was learning in a certain community. And if no one at all learns, we know the world is in danger. The world existed because of learning Torah. And they say the world of that, that community existed because the Rav... Reb Zev Nachum learned Torah at that time. And he was promised a child who would light up the world. Even as at the Bris, there is a legend 
that Eliyahu Hanavi appeared in a direct vision to people who were at the bris and gave a bracha to the child. The young fellow grew up in Poland, learned in the cities in which his father was the Rav. His father was the Rav in various cities. He traveled with him, went with the family. I don't have a record of him learning in any particular yeshiva or having any particular Rebbe, except for the fact that at a very young age, he married the daughter of the Kutzker. Now, of course, the Kutzker was the very enigmatic figure in the world of Hasidus, and we know of the harshness, of the truth, of the criticism that the Kutzker gave to everyone, and of the solitude of the Kutzker, but I do not have any direct evidence as to the Gaonus of the Kutzker. A Hasidic does not necessarily reflect his level of learning or this demonstration of the level of learning to be more precise. But we know that the Avni Nezer, who certainly was a major godel in the world, served the Kutzker, learned by the Kutzker, even in the years of solitude, the Sochachavar was known to have contact and learn with the Kutzker, and he respected him very much. In the introduction to Egletal, which of course is a world-famous introduction, where he discusses the concept of learning Torah Lishma and discusses the enjoyment of learning Torah, the Hanoah from Limut Torah is part of the concept of learning Torah Lishma. This Hagdama is well used, well learned in yeshivas today. And that same Akdama, he credits with the Kutzker Rebbe, his father-in-law, with giving him his derech and limud. It is from there that I know more than any other source that the Kutzker was really a great Talmud Chacham. The Avni Nezer said he is a Talmud and received a lot from his father-in-law from the Kutzker. Whereas many, many Hasidic Sherebis were known more for their kehilah, more for their community, more for their stories about them, more for their Hasidisha type of Torah, the Sachachavar was not known in his lifetime as much for his world of Hasidus. At the type at the time of his wedding, the Kutzker gave him a bracha and he said to him that he hopes that he will not have many Hasidim. He wanted him to devote himself more to learning Torah. But he said, I hope in one respect you have Talmidim, because look at yourself as if you have many Talmidim, because you learn me Talmida Yosemikulam. From your students you learn more than, than you teach. So you need students in order to grow in learning, but he did not want those students to divert him from his own personal development, his personal learning in Torah. The bracha seems to have come true, the tzibur, the masses that seem to have come to the cut to the Kutzker, don't seem to have come to the Sochachavar. On one hand, the real Hasidim wrote books where they told stories of mofsim, of unbelievable stories about the Sochachavar. One of the first biographies of Hasidic Sherebis was a sefer called Abir Haroim, 
about the Sachachavar, and it's mostly epigrams, short comments made either by the Sachachavar or about the Sachachavar. Later on, this Abir Haroim has been used as a source to study Hasidus. And in Eretz Yisrael, not long ago, Yisrael Erlich printed a sefer completely about the Hasidish dynasty of Sochachav, including all the Rebbes until today. And he called his sefer Abirei Haroim. Instead of Abir Haroim, one person who was specifically the Sochachavar, he wrote about all the Sochachavar Rebbes, and he called it Abirei Haroim. The the Sochachavar is primarily known for his godless in Torah. The Svarim that are most famous, of course, are the Egle Tal. The Egle Tal, as the word Tal represents the numbers Lamites 39, this was a Sefer that was planned by the Sochachavar to be a lengthy exposition on Lamites Malachas. A Hasidish Sefer, which is indispensable today for anyone learning Shabbos. It is one of the classic works used in all yeshivas, Litvashem, Hasidish yeshivas, all learn the Egletal. As I mentioned before, the Hakdama is also world famous. And there, he only deals with the first 11 Malachos of Sidur de Pas. He only finished the Sefer Egletal, the Malachos that end with baking bread, that begin with the preparation of bread and end with the prep with the making of the baking. Eleven malachas were done. This does not seem to be his original intention, but that's all that he himself printed. However, after his patira, his students found many many notes about the other malachos. These notes are printed. In the Sheilot Shivot Avnei Nezer. The Avnei Nezer is the classic, are the classic Svarim of the Tshuvas of the Sochachavar. A number of volumes include many, many Tshuvas and many, many various topics. However, in Arachayim, there are big, big sections which deal with Malachas that were not dealt with in Eglital, and it seems to be that these are the notes you, that he meant to continue and publishing the Egletal on the rest of the Malachas. But he was not privileged to finish that Sefer. So, the Talmidim did print it in the Avnei Nezer. Certain things about the Sochachavar, besides the fact of his fame in learning Torah, besides his fame, are well known. He opposed certain changes in the modern world, and he represented sort of the old guard about these issues. One of them specifically was about machine matzahs. At that time when matzahs were first baked by machines, the, the Hasidic world was very, very uh, opposed to any such concept. You could deal with it on halachic fashion, you could deal with it perhaps in a, an emotional fashion, the Sochachavar basically did ni- neither. He just wrote that it's wrong to do. Gedole Israel said it's wrong. I don't know. I have never checked the machines. I know nothing about it. But yet, if the Hasidic Rebbes, if the Rebbes say that this is not right, he was opposed to it 
and wrote a number of tshuvas that he was opposed to any new concept of making machine matzahs. On the other hand, one of the most important and characteristic, characteristic points of the Avdenezer was, in our terms today, we would call him a staunch Zionist. He was in favor of Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael and began himself to a plan to buy lands in Eretz Yisrael and to build the Hasidus in Eretz Yisrael. The very famous tshuva of the Avnei Nezer. In fact, a great section of that tshuva is printed in that book, Abirei Harawim, because it's such a classic tshuva to show the love of the Sachat Shavar for Eretz Yisrael, where he discusses why is it that many people did not go to live in Eretz Yisrael? Why is it that many gedolim, many great hamenichachamim, tzadikim, did not go to live in Eretz Yisrael? The Sachat Shavar suggested that the real mitzvah of Eretz Yisrael is to have parnasa from Eretz Yisrael. To build Eretz Yisrael, the real mitzvah of building Eretz Yisrael is to build Eretz Yisrael directly. To work and get your sustenance directly from Eretz Yisrael. Of course, he based this on Hasidic thought as well. He felt that a person in Eretz Yisrael has a more of a direct connection with the Sarah Parnasa, with the one who is controlling the concept of the economy, of your own welfare, and the direct connection in Eretz Yisrael to such a Sarah Parnasa would be tremendous, have tremendous value. So he said he, he knows that if he went on Aliyah, for example, he would be supported for money from Chutzlaretz. He would get receive his support from Chassidim in, in Chutzlaretz, but he himself would not be able to generate a living in Eretz Yisrael. And he felt this is not the real concept of Mitzvah Sishav Eretz Yisrael. Interestingly enough, although he was not privileged to go on Aliyah, the Hasidish dynasty of Sochachav became well known for their love of Eretz Yisrael. In fact, they came on Aliyah, and the Kihla of Bayit Vegan, that very famous community today in Yerushalayim, was actually started by the Sochachav Hasidim. In fact, the Sochachav based Madrish still exists in Bayit Vegan today, and there are important signs of their involvement in the Melchemet HaShechur, in the War of Independence, that to be found in Sochachav today, in Bayit Vegan. The Sochachav had many students, including, included among the students are Rameir Dan Platsky, the person who wrote the Kleichemda, one of the famous Polish, Polish gedolim of that generation. But, in fact, in the world of Hasidus, it's more famous that his children continued in the path of being the Hasidus of, of Sochachav. And his son, Reb Shmuel, was the author of one of the classic Hasidic Shesvarim, the Shem Shmuel. In the Shem Shmuel, that we, is the only place that I personally know of Hasidic Torah said by the Sochachav or by the Avni Nezer. Because the Shem Shmuel occasionally quotes his father and explains Hasidic Shatiris in the name of his father. The Sachachavar lived till the age of 71. He passed away 
1910. The story of his Petira is also told in the Sefer Abire Haroim. His wife, the daughter of the Kutzker, was very, very supportive of her husband. In fact, imbued with the spirit of Kutsk, she used to push him and criticize him and make him reach even higher heights. When he, was, when he used to complain of pain, that he didn't feel well, she would answer to him, don't spoil yourself, take a gemara, nothing is going to hurt you. This is what my father had taught me. The Sachachavah respected his wife very much. And when she passed away, just before Hanukkah, the year before the Sachachavah passed away, he began to be weaker. As during the Shiva that he sat for his wife, he actually became ill. And he said, until now I live from the spirit of Kutsk. I was con- connected to Kutsk through my wife. Now that I don't have this source, I don't know how I'm going to have enough strength to continue. And indeed, the Sachachavar did not outlive his wife by long. At the last day of his life, he put on a talis, put on a tefillin, and davened. According to the Sachachavar tradition, when he reached the words in Shemona Essay, Baruch Ata Hashem, who assembles all those that are scattered among B'nai Yisrael, he passed away. This was on the 11th of Adarishon, Tafish Reish Ayin. His Gaonis in Halacha is unquestioned. The Shemesh Shmuel proved that he was a Gaon in Chasidus as well. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. I just want to address one last point. We discussed last week uh, the difficulty of learning Parshat Ruman Titzaveh, and I thought I would just share a very basic point in the Pshat with our listeners that through a little bit of hard work and using a book with pictures and reading Rashi carefully over a Shmira between 5.30 and 7 in the morning, I was able to perhaps explain something that I didn't understand before. We have, amongst the Kohanim, amongst the Bidei Kohen Gadol, we have the Ephod, which is, looks like something like an apron, and we have the Me'il. These are two clothing, amongst the four clothing, ultimately, that there are, that the Kohen Gadol has in addition to the regular Kohen. The Kohen, the regular Kohen wore a ketonet, some sort of very simple robe. The Kohen Gadol wore the same robe, but on top of the robe he wore a me'il, which was made out of tchelet, pure tchelet, and on top of that me'il he wore this apron, the ephod. On the ephod, the choshen mishpat, the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, with which he was able to communicate with God, sat. The question is, what is the relationship between the Ephod and the Me'il? What is serving what? And Rashi, in 
at least two places seems to imply that the purpose of the ephod, this apron, is to tie down the me'il. In other words, the me'il is what is important. And the ephod is, there's a, a belt that, that goes around that is attached to the ephod, and it ties around the the me'il. And in one place, Rashi says that the belt of the ketonet, the ketonet we mentioned is the first garment that all the Kohanim wore and the Kohen Gadol wore, the Kohen, the, that, that ketonet had a belt, the avnet. And the purpose of the avnet was to hold down the ketonet, and Rashi says the avnet to the ketonet is like the ephod to the me'il. In other words, both of them are belts. The ephod is the belt for the me'il. In Pasuk Lamed Alev, the Torah says, V'asitat me'il ha'ephod k'lil techelet. Me'il ha'ephod. The me'il is called me'il ha'ephod. And Rashi explains, what is me'il ha'ephod? Why is it called Me'il Ha'ifod? Because the Ifod is put on it as a belt. If we read the Hebrew correctly, Me'il Ha'ifod means the Me'il that belongs to the Ifod. In other words, the simple pshat means that not the ephod is serving the me'il, but rather the me'il serves the ephod. So what does this mean then? The ephod, as we mentioned, holds the choshen. The choshen, the choshen amishpat, is one of the more significant parts of the Kohen Gadol's garments. It is what he communicates with God through that choshen mishpat. The ephod holds this Choshen Mishpat. So the Ephod is a very significant garment. Apparently, the purpose of the Me'il, then, is that the Ephod, which is holding the Choshen Mishpat, shouldn't be sitting on the regular ketonet that all Kohanim wear, but rather, the Ephod should be sitting on an additional garment, a significant garment, the Me'il, and that is the purpose of the me'il. It is not that the ephod is a belt for the me'il, but rather it is me'il ha'ephod. It is the me'il, which is the garment which the ephod sits on. So here what we see is that we have a machoket between Rashi and what I believe is the pshat, so we could call it machoket between Rashi and myself, is the ephod the belt of the me'il, which is Rashi's position, or is the me'il the garment which holds the ephod on it, which is my opinion. Take it or leave it. I ask, I, I challenge all the listeners to look into this, into the Parsha, and be convinced by myself or by Rashi. In any case, with that little note in the shot in Parsha Tetzaveh, we have learned something new in the Parsha, or I certainly have that I didn't know before, 
And with that, we will say to all our listeners, Shabbat Shalom.